Welcome to another episode of Politically Entertaining. I'm Frank, here with Byron. Of course, Byron, the Olympics are in full swing in Rio, so that's really exciting. We're going to get to that a little bit later. Uh, but before we get into the show and everything we do, let the listeners know what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. We've been at this for a while now. This is episode 19, and if you don't know by now, we here on Politically Entertaining, we just really try to bring you stories that don't get covered as much that we think it, that we think are important. Uh, we will touch on stories from time to time that have been covered a lot, depending on how important we think it is to you. We try not to give you a bunch of information that we don't think you need. Before we get into important topics, Frank, it's a, uh, I would say a relatively slow political week. Congress is still on, on recess. Uh, you got Trump still doing what he does. But since the conventions, things have kind of slowed down. So this episode, we're going to talk about, still going to talk about politics, but we're going to talk about a couple of other things. Right now, as you mentioned, the Olympics are going on, and I just wanted to get your your thoughts on, you know, for me, I have like a particular moment with each each Olympics that I've watched, and the first Olympics that I ever watched was in 92, and Kerry Strug and the whole Dream Team thing are what stand out to me. That was the first Dream Team where we put all those professional NBA players together, and they just dominated the whole Olympics. 96, the gold shoes on Michael Johnson, that stands out for me. The next few were kind of a blur. The last couple, I would say Usain Bolt definitely stands out. And recently with the 2016 Olympics, Simone. We got Simone Biles, Simone Manuel. Uh, the dominance of Simone Biles has been amazing. Uh, we will talk about both of those young ladies later in the show. What has stood out to you and do you have any past standout moments from past Olympics? Yeah, I'm a huge Olympics guy, man. I really, really enjoy the Olympics. Uh, you know, it's funny. I don't want to nitpick you, but you said Carrie Strug in 92. She was actually in 96 with that uh, team in Atlanta. Was so, it? Okay. Yeah, that was 96. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm that guy. I hate I hate being that guy, but I am that guy. Uh, but 92, obviously, Dream Team. Who, who can forget the Dream Team in 92? That was amazing. I, I, as a kid, we had Weekly Reader. I bought the book. You could order books for Dream Team. I still have the book with the Dream Team in it. So that was amazing. 96. Uh, you mentioned the gold shoes, but certainly the women, uh, the seven women, including Dominique Dawes, who you, you mentioned Simone Biles, but Dominique Dawes was the first black gymnast that I saw who was, you know, good and competent and, and you know, that kind of thing. So it was awesome to see them win the gold medal. Uh, you know, like you said, 2000 is kind of a blur. I do remember it was in Australia and I remember Kathy Freeman wearing this kind of weird onesie type of outfit and she won the 400 and that was kind of cool. She was from Australia. Uh, 2004, uh, I don't remember. Um, no, 2000 might have been Greece. 2004 might have been Australia. I, you know, so I don't know what was going on that. I think I was in college at that time, so I don't remember those Olympics that well. 2008, as you mentioned, Usain Bolt certainly stands out. Uh, also in 2008, we had the Redeem team that stood out because Kobe Bryant really came out and led, led the Dream team or the Americans to, to a gold medal because they actually lost in 2004. That was actually kind of a, a weird Olympics. We lost. Uh, with our pros in 2004, we had to revamp the whole basketball system. So that was like a rebirth, 2008, 2012. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Bolt's dominance certainly stands out. Uh, to me, the American women in sprinting were really outstanding in 2012 in London. Sonia Richards-Ross, who's now retired, Allison Felix, who uh, is running 400. She's running, two, she was running 200 the last time. So they were really outstanding. They broke the, I think they broke the record in the 400 meter relay. So that was, that was really impressive as well. So, uh, this year, as you mentioned, I'll get to some of my favorites. Maybe as we close the show, I'll, I'll tease them. But certainly, the Simones are are right up there. But it, it's been an exciting Olympics, and the Olympics are a great story uh, to me. Just seeing athletes come in and compete uh, at such a high level from different countries and hearing their stories is always an amazing thing. I do remember that Redeem team in '08. I didn't watch it that much, but was that the year that Vince Carter jumped over the guy head and dunked? No, that was in 2000. That's like way back when 2000 okay. is when we jumped over Frederick Weiss. That was actually like we were kind of struggling. Like not, not that I want to get into a dissertation about the United States basketball, which were which there's some issues with that now currently. But uh, in 2000, we were kind of like kind of coasting because we had the 92 Dream Team and 96. We kind of rolled over people. In 2000, we started to slip a little bit, but certainly they still won. And you know that Vince Carter dunk is any all anybody ever remembers. And why would you, and why would you remember anything else? Because I mean I'm sorry he's the best in game dunker of all time. There's a lot of great dunkers and I, and I know I might anger somebody saying that, but he's 
the greatest in-game dunker that I've seen. Now, I didn't see some old footage. Somebody might come over and say, Dr. J. I didn't, I didn't see Dr. J like that. I can't, can't vouch for him. Agree, agree. Well, let's get into, I used to say let's get into some politics, but let's get into some politics and news stories. Listening to Politically Entertaining, your Cliff's Notes to American Politics. And now, your host, I want to thank Frank everybody again for Byron. joining us on Politically Entertaining. You can subscribe on iTunes, Podcast, Podbean, as well as Stitcher Radio. We'll be talking to a young man by the name of Quentin Brooker later on in the show. He, uh, I guess it's safe to say, Frank, he's not a huge fan of voting in the presidential election. So we'll get his thoughts on that. Uh, we have what many are referring to as Clinton Republicans. We used to have Reagan Democrats in the 80s. Now Clinton Republicans seem to be emerging, those that are dissatisfied with Donald Trump. And we'll talk about Rio uh, a little bit later. First, uh, a story that me and Frank have touched on a couple of times now, uh, this Zika virus. It's, it's actually hit a particular neighborhood in Miami. Uh, they set up restrictions as far as traveling to that city. Uh there have been calls for Congress to come back from their recess. They take a recess in August. There have been calls for them to come back and finally pass a Zika funding bill. They could not agree to the $1.9 billion that the White House asked for. The Republicans on the House and Senate, they did agree to a $1.1 billion uh, bill, but the Democrats were against it. And here's why we have a disagreement with it, folks, because I know a lot of you have probably heard that they haven't passed any funding. And we're about to run out because what the White House did was they took Ebola money and they uh, diverted to fighting Zika. That money is going to run out in most places in August and it'll be completely depleted, according to the uh, health secretary, by October. So we need more money fast. Uh, basically, the Republicans in Congress are trying the one point one billion that they approve. They're taking money from Planned Parenthood. That has been like a number one fight for them. And the Democrats are saying, no, stop playing political games. We're not going to agree to that. Let's just pass a bill without taking money from programs like Planned, like Planned Parenthood. I know we talk about this all the time, Frank, but now that it has actually hit an American city, you would think that our Congress would get, get their act together and pass something. Lives could be at stake. Are you at all surprised that they still can't come to any type of agreement or are you just numb to this whole political circus that we have? It's it's I'm pretty much numb to it. It is amazing because as, as we mentioned on previous shows and like you said, you ran down all the ways you can listen to previous shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, as, as well as Podbean. You know, it's, it's incredible that we're in a position that there is a potentially, you know, could be end up being a pandemic as far as a virus and we're just kind of sitting on our hands because we, we want to wring our hands by where we, where we take the money from. And, you know, of course, of course, Republicans are against Planned Parenthood, which I totally understand. And I, and I, and I'm, and I respect the stance of that. But if passing the bill, it can be done another way and you can fight this battle over Planned Parenthood for some, in another, in another time, you really should because Zika does not discriminate. Zika is not partisan. Zika does not, is not right or left leaning. Zika is a virus and it will, you know, affect all those who come in contact with it. So we just, it just, it's just kind of amazing that we don't have the wherewithal to say, hey, you know what, this is a potentially dangerous situation. We have to uh, take care of it. And whatever difference we have with Planned Parenthood or healthcare or name whatever the issue might be, because it will always be an issue. Don't use those issues to railroad safety to the American people. These are the things that people need to know and need to hear is that, you know, by the time next year hits, Zika could be widespread in this country, causing wreaking havoc on on young mothers, young children, you know, people in general. And we're 
wait, worrying about ring hand ringing over parent, Planned Parenthood. I can guarantee you this. When people are losing children, losing pregnancies, and, and children are dying, people aren't going to give two cents about whether or not Planned Parenthood is is in effect if this could have been prevented. So it's, it's sickening, but it's typical. And so I'm numb to it, but I am not... I'm not surprised, but I am not pleased either. Congress is known for doing things at the very, very last minute. They've passed uh, budget funding bills in the past, like literally a minute before midnight. They like doing things at the last minute. So I I would hope that uh, by the time the fiscal year ends, which is the last day of September, that they find something and figure out something and agree to it. And get something passed because as you stated you don't want it to come to us losing babies or having deformed babies when this could be prevented um we're going to talk about those Clinton republicans in a second but before we do we had a guest by the name of lashandra holmes young on here a few episodes ago we discussed many things one of the things we discussed was her possibly being on the cover of red magazine well frank she got the cover she's on the september cover of uh the, the issue of Red Magazine. So we just want to real, real, really quick on behalf of Political Entertainment, congratulate her. Congratulations, LaShondra Holmes. You're doing some great things. Uh, we are proud to have had you on the show and uh, continue doing your thing. And just congratulations. That's a big deal. We've posted it on our Facebook page. We'll probably post it again. And um, just I'll give you a second to weigh in on that if you like, Frank, and then we'll get on to the Clinton Republicans. But congratulations, Ms. Young. Oh, just just congratulations to her. I, you said Red Magazine. Is it Red or Red Book? I'm not at all a, a magazine person, but uh, you know, congratulations to her, regardless of the name of the magazine. I just wanted to clarify that. I will double check on that in a second. I think it's Red Magazine, but it could be Red Book. Either way, listen to the past episode if you uh, are a current listener. Listen to that past episode, and we definitely we get the correct name of the magazine on there. Uh, again, we're going to be talking to Quinnen Brooker of Brooker Law Group, and he also has, I guess you can call it like a Facebook live TV show. It's called uh, QB Law TV, where he gives advice and different takes. Uh, and again, as I stated earlier, he's not a big fan of presidential elections, so we will talk to him in a moment. Frank, in the 80s, when Reagan was elected to the White House, he pulled a lot of Democrats, and they were they were referred to as Reagan Democrats, people that normally voted Democrat. They were, you know, swayed by his candidacy and voted for him. Well, now we're in 2016. There are a lot of establishment and a lot of people, a lot of establishment Republicans, and a lot of people that always vote Republican that are not happy with the Trump campaign and the Trump candidacy, and they are saying, hey, I'm voting for Hillary most notably, there are like 60 prominent Republicans that served in the, either the Bush administration or the Reagan administration that have come out. These are like generals, uh, people that worked in the CIA, uh, cabinet positions, different different positions. They have come out and said that they're going to support Clinton. And she has actually pulled ahead in some battleground, battleground states, particularly like Georgia, which normally isn't a battleground state. That's usually... Republican, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. We talked about a Trump. We, we talked about Trump a lot last episode as he continued to spew different things from his mouth. Um, are you at all surprised? Because you know, I mean, you follow politics, Frank. You know how much Republicans dislike Clinton. Like Obama had a lot of Republicans vote for him, but at the time, like they they don't like him now. But at the time in 08, they didn't really mind him. He was new. He was fresh. But Clinton, she's been around since 92. Republicans can't stand her. So to have Republicans fix their mouths to say that they'll vote for her. How big of a deal is this, considering that Trump needs pretty much every state that he can get losing in states like Georgia right now? I think it speaks volumes on how how disconnected Donald Trump is from his campaign you know, not that I I don't want to get into this because I, I don't have the exact source, but basically there's been speculation that the money he's raised for his campaign, he's not even fully putting it into his campaign. He's actually putting it back into his his businesses and kind of padding his own, uh, you know, pockets, so to speak, with his because he has a lot of 
you know, he's a, he's very much over leveraged, over mortgaged in his businesses and his business dealings. So there's there's just a huge questions about whether or not Donald Trump even really wants to be in the race. He's saying things and doing things that are not becoming of, of any forget a president. You wouldn't vote for a guy for governor, for mayor. Uh, or city council or hell, even if you want to say student council going back to, you know, high school. I mean, the things he's doing are, are, are nonsensical from a standpoint of cons- real conservative Republicans who I, who I, and I know many Republicans who I respect, their, their, their conservative values are, are, are not at all espoused by what Trump is saying. Trump says things that are completely uh, contrary, he 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 promotes hate, and even though there is there is certainly a stereotype uh, from, especially you know when you're talking to African Americans about conservative and what that really means, that mean closet racist type of thing. I mean that, that that that's something that is is you know needs to probably be talked about more. But there are a lot of you know people who are conservatives who are not racist, and they are not down with the tr- the Donald Trump speak, the bullying, the talk to about Mexicans, the talk about. Uh, other minorities to talk about Muslims. They, they're not with that. They're not with his policies that will expand the national debt. He he doesn't. He's not a real Republican. Only thing he's doing is is saying things that nobody's ever said. And and really, what does that amount to? He's just a guy who, if the comments wall, I've seen this many times. If the comments wall came alive and became a candidate, it would be Donald Trump. And 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 that's the crazy thing about it. Like I think at this point. He's he's marginalizing himself to only have a very small base of really what amounts to neo-Nazi white nationalists and other, you know, people who are Republicans who are conservatives are are disgusted by that. They don't, you know, whatever you regardless of what you how you feel about Bush or about Reagan, uh, none of them ever would have would have they would have denounced David Duke and any other white national organization, at least publicly, certainly vehemently. You know, Donald Trump pretty much is is seems to be in David Duke's pocket, and, and that's turning a lot of people off. And and I just think his unrepentant, his his unapologetic nature is just rubbing people the wrong way. You know, it, the 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 reality show has gone on maybe too long, and maybe he's wearing away all all eroding all support. And the fact that you have, as you mentioned, established Republicans saying they're voting for Clinton. That's more of an insult to they. They feel like their party is being taken away. They that's they're more saying that the Republican Party of conservative fiscal values, conservative social values is now dead because it's being run by a man who's fiscally irresponsible, who's on his third wife, who has five kids, you know, by three women uh, and, and certainly has many shady business dealings. They're 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 basically sitting it out and hoping that in 2020, uh, Either another party emerges or the party gets blown to shreds and starts over so they can, you know, get back to what they they do as far as, um, you know, Republican values and and the way they want to run the country. It's still relatively early. Uh, We're like a little less than 90 days from Election Day. So there is time for him to, you know, definitely uh, make a comeback and uh, surpass her in, in a lot of these polls. But uh, the longer he keeps winging it like he is with the the, the the things that he's saying, you know, it could it could eventually doom him. Uh, what I found funny was Rince Priebus, the chairman of the Republican Party, has he's kind of like he's a babysitter now. He is a babysitter for the Trump campaign. He is now traveling with the campaign, and I guess they're trying to keep him more in check because he is losing it. Uh, and Frank, you are two for two, by the way. It is Red Book Magazine. My apologies to Red Book, LaShondra Holmes Young. Red Book Magazine is the cover that she was on. And again, we congratulate on her. Congratulate her. Um, let's talk to Quinn and Brooker about many different things, including the presidential election. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. Joining us today on Politically Entertaining, he is a criminal defense attorney at Brooker Law Group in Houston, Texas. He has a uh, show on Facebook Live called QB Law TV and something that I can't wait to discuss with him. He's not a fan necessarily of voting on the presidential election. So we will discuss that in a moment. But Quentin Brooker, I want to thank you for joining us today, brother. Hey, thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. 
No problem, man. Uh, before we get into what I mentioned as far as, you know, with the election and politics, uh, I wanted I wanted you to uh, talk more about your, your Facebook live show, QB Law TV. What can viewers expect uh, if they were to tune in, and how did it come about, and how long have you been, been doing it? Hey, I really appreciate that, man. Um, you know, when I first saw the live function on Facebook, I saw a friend do it, and I thought that it was a cool way to kind of interact. And um, I wanted to really take people into what I do as a criminal defense lawyer. And so I started out on Periscope, which I believe is a, a creature of Twitter, but I didn't really have a very large Periscope following. I think I may have had maybe 100 people that followed me on Periscope, and, um, and I didn't really get a whole lot of feedback. And a lot of the feedback that I got was from people I didn't know. So I, I thought, man, I got close to 5,000 friends on Facebook. Let's try it from the perspective of Facebook. And uh, the initial show that we did, I think we had something like 500 views the first night. And so I thought that would be a great way to just really connect the people that I knew and some people that I uh, just have, I guess, a general um, relationship with. And a lot of people tuned in. A lot of people uh, reached out, asked questions. And it was just really, really fun to kind of do it that way. So that's how I got into uh, doing the show, and we called it QB Law TV um, because I, I refer to a lot of a lot of things that are really creatures of my mind, or just some of the things that I've learned. I call that QB Law, um, and this was in my mind a perfect way to kind of transition it to social media. So um, when I do broadcast, I do it on Thursdays at eight o'clock. Right now, we're in a we're in all season during the summer, but we'll be back really soon. And when we do, I'll make the announcement on Facebook. And it's every Thursday at uh, 8 p.m. And the show usually goes for at least 60 minutes, and sometimes, depending on the subject matter, it goes a little longer. Um, but that's how we kind of got started, just really frustrated with some of the things that we've been seeing socially, uh, particularly as to how it affects us as black people. And, you know, a lot of people – I, you know, I tell my friends all the time that are lawyers, I'm like, man, we do this stuff all the time, and we're always around lawyers. But, you know, many of our friends and family, they, they don't really uh, get that opportunity. So let's talk about what it is to actually go through the justice system, whether it's civil court or criminal court, because a lot of people just really don't know. So that was the original intent, and we started to kind of splice social issues in there as well. And um, that's how we came up with the format. Uh, when, I, when I spoke to you before we uh – conducted an interview earlier this week and you were telling me how you were in the off season of the the show and so much had happened with Alton Sterling yeah. to Philando Castile. So uh we definitely wanna we're glad that we're able to give you the opportunity during the off season to express some of the thoughts you may have on some of those issues that we'll get to in a moment. Uh I wanted Absolutely. to talk to you about your uh profession as a as a lawyer. On uh on training day Denzel Washington had the line that I like uh it's not what you it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. As mm -hmm. as a lawyer, do you take on clients that you may necessarily not believe whether or not they're you may not think that they're uh not guilty, but you feel like you can win the case or do you only take on cases that you actually believe the person in not being guilty? I don't know if I asked that correctly, but do you get what I'm asking? I do. I do, and that's a great question and that's a question that as a lawyer we hear all the time, especially a criminal defense lawyer, because people tend to think that if you are a criminal defense lawyer, then that must in some way speak to your character, right. that you will actually represent a person who may or may not have committed a crime. But, you know, my view on this changed a lot. When I originally went to law school, um, I had just finished up my MBA. In fact, I had graduated with my MBA on that Friday, and I started law school on that Monday. So I, I anticipated that I was going to do some sort of civil litigation or some sort of transactional law, but when I got to law school, I just really fell in love with uh, litigation in general, being in the courtroom. And with criminal law, you tend to be in the courtroom a lot. And you tend to – I mean, a hearing could just break out just over nothing. You could just have a hearing. But that really doesn't really happen in civil, civil court. So I fell in love with just the idea of just really being in court and litigating trying cases and things, and now I guess my background in, you know, the pride that I have in, in our people and just some of the struggles that we've dealt with, this is like the perfect blend for me because at heart I'm a constitutional lawyer. And so what I do is I, I defend people 
um, who really are challenged by the government. And our Constitution gives us a lot of uh, rights and powers to exercise our freedoms against government oppression. So for me, criminal defense is just kind of a good fit. And so when you ask that question, you know, the first thing I do is I think like a constitutional lawyer. I, I say to myself, well, you know, in reality, I actually want the person to tell me whether they did it. So if, I, if a person comes into my office and is accused of murder, I literally want that person to be honest with me and say, hey, you know what, uh, QB, Mr. Brooker, I killed this person. Um, that helps the case, and that helps the defense. So I don't have a uh, a moral issue with defending people that may or may not be guilty of a of a crime or may or may not have committed a crime because the reality is they are still entitled to a defense. Whether they did it or not, they are entitled to due process. They are entitled to representation under the Sixth Amendment. They are entitled to the opportunity to have a trial. Um, they're entitled to an opportunity to be judged by their peers. So whether they are found guilty or whether they plead guilty or whether we win a case that perhaps we should not have won under the facts, it's still their right. And so I see myself as really an instrument of exercising people's rights under the Constitution. And it just so happens that as a black man, I find, and also as a black lawyer, I find that black people are, the statistics will bear this out. We call this empirical evidence on, on the show. Um, we find that black people are arrested more, they are prosecuted more severely, they're punished more severely in every state in this country. So in every state, no matter what the demographics are, black people, there are more black people in prison than really anyone else, and that doesn't really bear out when it comes to uh, the number of black people that actually live in this country. We only comprise 13% of the population, but we comprise 40, close to 40% of the prison population. That doesn't bear out. So when you, when you have those situations, whether a potential client tells me that he or she did it or not, I am still going to work to win the case. QB, I'm going to jump in here. Uh, this is Frank, and, sure. and that was a great uh, lead-in that you said to my question. You mentioned, you know, blacks being unfairly uh, prosecuted potentially and, and arrested at an alarming rate. One of the things we talk about on this show is we talk about people voting in local elections and how important that is. And one of the one of the um, offices that people overlook a lot of times is the district attorney. Uh, it's in, in most places, it's an elected office like the mayor or city council. And a lot of people don't realize that in places like Ferguson and other places that were where, where a majority black population was not voting. And you have, you know, a crooked district attorney potentially uh, pro prosecuting cases in a certain way. Have you seen, in your experience, uh, areas affected, by, you know, minorities where, you know, there, there's problems with minorities getting arrested, and they're the majority of the population, and yet they're not voting, and they have a district attorney, and you're trying cases, and you feel like the district attorney is basically trying to railroad uh, these clients? Uh, Frank, thank you, man. Absolutely. Um, the local election is, in my opinion, the election that will affect you more tomorrow. And so, you know, it's interesting because in Texas, judges are elected, district attorneys are elected. Some states they're not, but here they are. And I found in my practice, and I've been practicing close to 10 years, um, I found that the judges and the district attorney the, the outcome of the election generally follows the presidential election. So in other words, like when President Obama was elected uh, in 2008, we had a slew of Democratic judges get elected. Um, if I can recall, what is there, two or three, a couple of black judges, because Harris County is the largest county in Texas. It's the fourth largest county in the country. We have 22 felony district courts. And we have now 16 misdemeanor courts. That's a huge criminal system. It's totally dedicated to criminal law. Every other county in Texas is significantly smaller than Harris County, so does Houston. So what, what we found is that when President Obama got elected, a lot of Democratic judges got elected, and things were different. I mean, I, I started to see differences. Um, we would file motions and things with judges that in the past we – anticipated that these motions wouldn't work. And with these new judges, at the time, we got those things done. In fact, there was one judge who, he was a very liberal uh, judge. He was a Democrat. He had tattoos, and he didn't wear a tie. and He would chew gum on a bench and things of that nature. And, I mean, 
defense lawyers would have bench trials. I mean, we would go in there and be like, no, we don't want no jury. We want a bench trial. We want this guy to try the case. You know, kind of, kind of knowing that he was going to have a, a, a really uh, people-centered stance as opposed to a prosecutorial stance in the case. So, yeah, man, I mean, we, we see this stuff. Like, uh, in President Obama's second term, a lot of other black lawyers tried to get on that bandwagon, and, and you know, they were, we were only marginally successful because it was a midterm type of thing. You know, President Obama had already been in. A lot of black people didn't come out to vote. So a lot of Democratic judges didn't win. In fact, a few of the Democratic judges had lost their seats during, uh, I guess, the, you know, what was it, 2012. Um, so we do see that. I mean, the, the, the voting is critical on a local level. The sheriff, the, the district attorney. Right now we have a very hotly contested DA's race that's coming up with a woman who was kind of grandfathered in because her husband was a DA. He died. She somehow got appointed as DA, and, and there's a lot of issues down here now. I don't know if you guys heard, but they, uh, they placed a, a victim, uh, a woman with a mental illness. The DA permitted her subordinate to place a victim, a rape victim, in jail for fear that she would leave, and they wanted her testimony. So that's a big thing that's going on right now. Like, how do you put a, a rape victim in jail? Um, these are the types of things that we see from a certain segment of our society. And, you know, usually it's the right wing, the conservative, the Republican uh, judges and DAs that tend to take this hard stance for law enforcement, and it always seems to somehow hurt uh, the people. Um, so absolutely, uh, Frank, we, we see um, when people don't participate in the voting process, and when I say people, I'm talking mostly black people, uh, Latinos. When we don't participate in that process, it hurts us directly with respect to these local elections. I mean, that, that was that was a great, a great answer, amazing perspective. And and so, with that in mind, I want to ask another follow-on question to that. So, you know, sometimes you watch. I mean, I watch a bunch of Law and Order, and, and obviously, it's just a TV show. Um, this is a two-part question. You know, how similar, when you try a case, how similar is it to, say, trying a, a case in Law & Order uh, for the defense? And then also on top of that, there was one particular episode of Law & Order that really stood out to me. It probably was about three three or four years old where basically the judge was um, had a deal set up with the with the district attorney where he was sending kids to, to prison for minor offenses for basically a kickback from the prison. Have you encountered any case like that? And so you can just answer those. Those two, yeah, not a problem. Man. Law and order, law and order is good. Uh, they, it, you know, none of that stuff is really one hundred percent accurate. But law and order is pretty good. Um, some of the, what we look at as trial lawyers, we tend to look at the objections that are made, because the objections that are made um, are purely legal. Um, they follow the, what we call the rules of evidence, and although the rules of evidence. We have a common law set of rules of evidence that we all kind of learn, um, no matter what state. But then every state also kind of alters them a bit. But that's, that's what most of the lawyers look at. Because in most of these law shows or law movies, you'll have a lawyer make an objection, and then he'll just start arguing. So he'll say, like, objection. He can't do that because this night it was raining, and we all know that it, you know, it wasn't raining. You know, they'll, they'll start talking, but that's not how the objections go. I mean, you, you object. And then you, you give a legal term, you know, objection relevance. And that's pretty much it. And so law and order, they're on point. I mean, they'll make an objection and it'll be like, you know, law and order rule, they'll say objection rule 403. And that's, that's a legitimate objection. They won't go on these long tangents, um, and things that, that we tend to see in some of the other more fabricated, uh, shows. So law and order is pretty close, although of course they're usually solving the entire issue within an hour, and that, that usually doesn't happen in real life. But um, with respect to Part B, uh, the actual case where that comes from, it was a Pennsylvania case, and I'm originally from Pennsylvania, from Philadelphia, but there was a, there was a judge in Pennsylvania that was um, doing exactly what you outlined. He, was, uh, he handled the juvenile docket for that particular county, and, you know, kids would get in trouble in school for minor offense, and they would somehow wind up going to these, you know, for all intents and purposes, prisons. Um, and they would spend time there, and these prisons happened to be privatized. And in this particular case, this judge 
was a uh, an interested party. He had financial interest in the in the prison. So, you know, usually with law and order, they base it off of something real. Um, I have not seen that. I don't do a whole lot of juvenile law. I, I have a couple of juvenile cases right now, but I don't do a lot of juvenile law. And in Texas, a juvenile is 16 and under. So um, I haven't seen that, thank God, because that would be that would be you know that would be a travesty if, if we encountered anything like that. But um, it is based on a real case, and I mean these things have happened. And now I was very interested in that case because I was wondering whether you know it was children from Philadelphia who are you know usually going to be black kids, but it wasn't. I mean he was sending white kids up and ruining their lives. Um, there's actually a Netflix documentary about the case. I can't remember the name of it, but um, I'll check and I'll send it to you guys, and maybe you'll check it out. But um, very interesting stuff. Sadistic, I believe. Obviously, he lost his ability to uh, practice law, and I believe he had to do some federal penitentiary time as well. Uh, but we do see it. I'd be very interested in seeing that. Uh, we are talking to Quentin Brooker on Politically Entertaining. He's a defense attorney at law has a Facebook live show that you can check out, uh, QB Law TV. Very busy man. In addition to being an attorney, he also coaches his son's uh, football team, so we really thank him for coming on. Um, I teased it at the beginning of the interview as far as how you feel about uh, presidential elections and voting in them. So what do you say to someone that says, because I want to get your stance on it correct, you feel like voting – Presidential elections that high up, it doesn't matter who's in office because the plight of black people and minorities in this country doesn't really change. Is that is that pretty much how you feel about presidential elections? Yeah, that, that sums it up. I mean, here's the thing: it's not that the president of the United States can't help black people. We know that the president has tremendous power. Right. Um, you know, obviously we have a, a three-layered system of government. And the president's powers are supposed to be limited. However, the president has spending power. The president has war power. The president has executive authority. Um, there are so many things that the president of the United States can do, um, veto power. But what we've seen, at least during my lifetime and when you read history, we've never seen a president that has made any executive action that significantly changes the circumstance of black people. Now, let's be real clear. We know, you know, there's a lot of, well, Abraham Lincoln, you know, Emancipation Proclamation. My views on that are that freeing the slaves was not Abraham Lincoln's primary objective. It was a consequence of the conditions of the country at that time. Slavery was the issue, but if Lincoln could have, kept slavery intact while also keeping the nation intact, he would, not have, uh, he would not have provided us with the Emancipation Proclamation. That, that would not have happened. So when, when you look at it, like when you look at President Obama's term, um, there has been not one executive action that has been implemented by this president that has directly affected the condition of black people. There are some things that he's done that have indirectly helped or at least appeared to help, but those actions, those executive actions also helped other people. And so, for example, his strong support of uh, non-discrimination of same-sex marriage. Well, my personal view of that is no person should be discriminated against. I don't care what it is that you do. That's my whole issue with racism. I mean, Discrimination against anyone is an injustice. So I would actually tend to agree with him. However, people want to live their their lives is their business. But that was a, an action that helped people of same-sex marriages and same-sex relationships. That wasn't an executive order or an executive stance that helped black people. Um, you know, he. Oh, I heard one lawyer say, well, he visited the the federal penitentiaries and then he issued all of these presidential pardons for uh, nonviolent drug offenses in prisons, and that let a whole lot of black people free. Yes, it did. But, again, that wasn't specifically tailored to black people. Now, we also know that in 2012, President Obama 
issued financial support for Holocaust survivors that lived in the United States. And right now there are about 130,000 Holocaust survivors in this country that live here. So the ones that are living below the poverty line, he issued a uh, yearly payout for five years, totaling in $12 million for those individuals. Those are actual funds that will go to these people because of something that occurred in 1940-something in Europe. I mean, th this is the type of thing that baffles me. This is a black president, and he issued an executive order that pays out millions of dollars to a group of people that were harmed. And, and I mean, the Holocaust was terrible. We all know. We, we, I think we all would agree with that. But yeah. these people weren't even Americans when this happened. They just happened to be Americans now, and they happened to live under the poverty line, so he happened to give them $12 million. Why is it that every other nationality, race, uh, group of people, culture of people that have been harmed in some way, why is it that they get actual recompense from our government? But black people who had been here arguably before 1619, which is when the first slaves were uh, documented to be here, but why is it that black people don't get anything? When am I going to get my money? When are you going to get your money? Um, th this is the type of thing that baffles me. So if President Obama, who is the son of a Kenyan, if he won't issue an executive order to pay us restitution, to uh, do things that make our lives better, and I'm not talking about, oh, we need to change the criminal justice system so that it's better for everybody. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something specifically for black people, like every other nationality has got. Native Americans, they receive reparations. Japanese Americans, they receive reparations. Yep. Now, we have the, now we have Jewish Americans receiving reparations for something that happened in World War II, but black people, still nothing. So if President Obama won't use his executive authority to make sure that we get paid, why do I think Hillary Clinton is going to do it? A woman whose husband, when he was president, he issued executive orders that, in fact, made our lives worse. So, and certainly uh, no one would argue that Donald Trump has the best interests of black people in mind. So here we are talking about Hillary Clinton and, and Trump and who's the lesser of two evils and why, when it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, the condition of black people will remain the same. We're last in income, we're last in home ownership, we're last in wealth, and we're first in imprisonment. Those are the statistical numbers. I mean, you can look it up yourself. This condition has not changed in the last 100 years. So why do I think it's going to change now with the election of the Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? It's not. The, the points you bring up, especially with uh, the Japanese-Americans and uh, even to a certain extent with the Holocaust survivors, is a point that I bring up as far as why can't black people get reparations. I haven't made that point much on the show, but in private conversations I have. So I really thank you for, for pointing that out. I want to try to give the, the, the counter-argument to what you said. Would it be fair to say that, okay, uh, pre a, a president may not necessarily pass an, uh, an executive action to uh, directly affect black people in a positive way, but would it be prudent for a black person to vote in a presidential election to keep a particular candidate for doing more harm in the case of, like, Reagan being president and how he, you know, help facilitate crack cocaine into a lot of inner cities, or Bush with going to war. You know, a lot of times, a lot of lower income people are the ones that are that are going up, go off to war. And even with judges in Texas, you guys vote on your judges, but a lot in a lot of states, you know, the president they uh, appoint these judges to be voted on in the Senate uh, in different states and different districts as judges. So, would that be enough reason to? counter your argument and say, okay, we can't expect a president to do exactly, you know, directly something for black people, but we can't elect somebody that won't bring about more harm, like a Donald Trump or not just Donald Trump, but any other other candidates in the past. Would that be something that you would be open to listening to? And, and I hear that. I mean, I hear you, but I, this is what this is how I would respond. Firstly, yes, the president of the United States does have the power to appoint federal judges, not, not state judges. And so in, in that respect, you have to be very careful um, with, you know, with who you 
choose to vote on if that's your choice to vote on a presidential election. Um, they do have the, also their power to appoint, obviously, nominees for the Supreme Court. But here's my response. Uh, I, I tend to go back and look at the policies of, of, of past presidents and uh, past elected officials just so we can be clear on what these people actually did. But in general, I'll answer your question in general, then I'll go back and try to provide some support. Okay. Uh, there is no number that is less than zero. And so when we talk about how a president may be uh, the lesser of the two evils or um, we talk about how a president may put us in a worse position than we're in, I'm going to be honest. My concern is black people. And some would say that that's maybe a selfish view, but my belief is that there is an actual war against the black man. And I firmly believe that based on what I see and what I read and what I study. This is not a, 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 a hunch. This is something that I have thought out very, very diligently. I have researched very, very diligently. There is a war against black people, um, particularly in this country. Really, it's a worldwide uh, war, but particularly in this country, there is a war against us. And so when I think about that, I ask myself, um, you know, what should be my concern? Should I be concerned about the economy in general? Should I be concerned about uh, the Supreme Court in general? Should I be concerned about the, the Senate in general? Or should I be concerned about how those things affect black people? And so I start there. How does my decision uh, to act or not to act affect black people at the end of the day? And what I've seen is that we have been last in every statistical category of note for really the past 200 years. And that hasn't changed. There's never been a time where we really have demonstrated any significant growth other than Reconstruction, and that lasted for 8 to 12 years. Right after the Civil War, you know, all of these rights and things were being, uh, were being passed and we were being elected and we were, uh, we were able to do different things in industry and in education. But then uh, you have Jim Crow come along and, and really just eradicate all of the progress that had been made. Um, then you have 100 years of lynching occur um, to incite terror within our families and things of that nature. So there's never been a time where we've ever really progressed. We've always been last. And so when I think about, you know, should I vote for Donald Trump or should I vote for Hillary Clinton, at the end of the day, neither one of them are going to implement policies that are going to change the condition of black people. Neither one. And I have to look at Hillary Clinton, what she's done – because she was an elected official. And as an elected official, she chose to lead a charge against Gaddafi um, and, and murder him. And you ask yourself, you know, what does that have to do with America? You know, what does that have to do with our national security? But when you really look at the facts, you know, Gaddafi was looking into creating an African economic system with all of the nation's leaders in Africa, the continent of Africa, and had they been successful in creating a unified economy with a unified uh, monetary system, it would have destroyed the economies of the West. And I strongly believe that that was the reason. Look, they talk about, oh, he was a terrorist, he killed his own people. Man, that nation was flourishing. Um, we, we, we fund, we give money to uh, ruthless dictators all the time. Uh, yeah, in fact, to get our own political agendas uh, accomplished. And so when I look at what she did particularly, and then when I look at her husband, I mean, he passed legislation here that was, uh, you know, it's interesting because the purpose of which was intended to fund local law enforcement agencies. Um, but when you look at that funding and what it's created, it's created a militarized police force that, I mean, I was, ta I was talking to some kids at church a couple of months ago, and I was like, man, when I grew up, a police officer had a revolver, a nightstick, and a funny-looking hat. That's all they had. But when you look at police today, they have tanks, they have helicopters, they have planes, they have um, AR-15s, they have body armor, uh, body armor piercing. They look like RoboCop. They have all of these toys, and that those toys come from funding. There's a uh, it's called actually it's called the Byrne Foundation, B-Y-R-N-E. 
This is all based on funding from the federal government to really militarize local police forces. And what do you want to do when you got a bunch of toys? You want to play with them. And you're not going to you're not going to play with them against you know the people that can actually fight back. You're going to go play with them against the helpless. So th- these are the policies that have been passed under these people. So if you're not going to do anything for me, why should I give you a vote? I mean, how does that help the situation? It do- I mean, to me, it doesn't help anything. Brooker Law Group, uh, QB Law TV is the uh, show on Facebook Live. When it gets going. Uh, let me know. I'll make sure we post it on our page as well. Politically appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on, man. Uh, we appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Quentin Brooker, everybody. Okay, brothers. Take care. want to thank Quentin Brooker again for coming on. Very busy gentleman, as I stated. Uh, an attorney, coaches his son, football team. Uh, obviously, he's a family man, so we really appreciate him making time for us today. Frank, um, we definitely see eye to eye on his uh, reparations argument. I definitely uh, feel the exact same way. Um, he he mentioned what we didn't get a chance to get into, and it's amazing how fast time can go by when we get into these interviews and you ask these questions, and before you know it, 25, 30 minutes have passed. But he mentioned the emancipation being like one of the last things that a president has done for black people, and even that wasn't necessarily directly for you know African Americans but I didn't get a chance to I wanted to uh, challenge him on well, what about the Voting Rights Act the Civil Rights Act affirmative action and get his take on that but as I said we will try to have him back on again hopefully we can get into those subjects but I don't think you can call him an unreasonable man he definitely you know support his argument with statistics and and facts um, but I would have liked to have gotten his response to that uh, what did you take away from the interview, and do you agree or disagree with, you know, his whole pre- presidential election stance? Because I know you agree with the whole, the emphasis on local elections. That's something me and you try to drive home, that don't just focus on presidential elections, but focus on those city council seats and mayors and sheriffs and uh, judges in your area. So what, were, what did you take away from this interview with Mr. Brooker? Uh, first of all, uh, QB, as he, as he calls himself, is a very, very intelligent guy. Uh, it was great to talk to him. Uh, you know, certainly he has some very, very strong opinions on some things. And some, some of the things I definitely 100% agree with him on. Some of the things I don't. Some of the things that I don't agree with him on are certainly the presidential election. Certainly, I, I understand what he's saying as far as it kind of being a zero-sum game of, well, whatever, whoever I vote for is not going to benefit, uh, you know, my my race and that kind of thing and, and so i my counter is as i and, and i don't want to get into a spiritual thing here but I, I am a christian so i will say that on the show um but at the same time i feel like anytime if you can make a difference it's not about who it's for if it's for anybody if it's if, it's, if you can do good you should always do it um you should always vote in my opinion i, I get i get it. this election is really really weird and maybe there's an argument that neither neither president is going to be good for the country but in the cases where, you know, there, there is a better candidate, somebody deserves to feel the benefit of that. And if you can cast a vote to to make a difference, then you should always do that. That's that is your right to do. Even if it, even if you're not the beneficiary of it, that's that's my stance. That's that's kind of a personal thing. That's not necessarily you don't have to do that. Certainly, logically, you can say, well, if this is, you know, as, as he mentioned, a zero sum game. Uh, there's no point to do it, then don't do it. But that's that's my opinion. So we, we disagree there. I, I would always encourage you to vote in everything. You know, you have a right to do it. You you pick the best candidate possible and vote and let the chips fall where they may. We try our best to stay in touch with pretty much every guest we have on the show. So when he does post his next episode on uh, QB Law TV, we would definitely have it up on our page as well. And again, um, I can't wait to have him back on because there's a lot of the things I like to get into. Uh, and he has some interesting takes. A very, very smart brother. So again, thank you for coming on, Quentin, and we'll talk to you again. Uh, want to discuss the dominance of Simone Biles and the surprising victory of Simone Manuel. Uh, before we get to that, Frank, there's been a lot of discussion. You know, Rio is like, I would say one of those at least I viewed it as one of those top destinations. You know, you see it on TV sometimes. They show that that beach and everything. 
So when they first announced that the Olympics were going to be there, I was like, man, that's that's going to be a great, great place for the athletes to go. Like everybody wants to go to Rio. And then the Olympics are here and you're hearing stories about uh, sewage coming out of the walls in some of the athletes rooms, the whole Zika. And this this is something they couldn't necessarily help with the whole Zika virus. But Zika is very heavy down there. The drinking water isn't safe. A lot of athletes don't have air conditioning in their rooms. And there is a story also out there that one of the, uh, the, the rowing teams capsized their boat by hitting a floating couch in the water frame. It was a floating couch in the water that they hit and capsized. I was not able to verify 100% true, but there are uh, stories out there. And just as recently as August the 2nd, there actually was a, a couch that was floating in the water that washed ashore. So it's not like it's an unbelievable thing that uh, could have happened. But I guess my question to you is, you know, being how I view Rio, I know many, many other people have, hearing all these stories and, and everything that's going on down there, do you think that will affect their tourism going forward after these Olympics? It might. I mean, and let me say this, I've actually been to Rio. I've been to Rio. I went to Rio in uh, 2007. And it's, it's a very nice place. I've been to Copacabana Beach. They they feature that. I've been to Empanema Beach. So very beautiful locations, very beautiful uh, country, uh, you know, nice people, nice hospitality. But it's, it's it's also a very poor country. You also see a lot of, uh, you know, homeless people in the streets, children in the street, hungry. So it, it is it is while there's some great things, there's definitely a lot of uh, class. You can see there's definitely some class issues going on there. Uh, as well so it's 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 a beautiful city but certainly there there's a dark side to it uh some of those favelas and stuff are are rough places and it's 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 not necessarily the picturesque place they're making it just the same way as any place i mean let's be realistic you know they can host uh, olympic games in america and have the city look great and you know the the ghettos are right around the corner so uh from that standpoint i don't think it's going to affect rio rio is known for carnival the the women there obviously are a huge draw um to men so that you know that that will still be something that i don't see going away uh the zika thing certainly may in the in the near term affect you know tourism but overall the weather is beautiful uh the the you know the cry they have the christ redeemer statue which you have to go there if you've ever you know been there so up a winding hill it's kind of crazy uh, they'll journey up there, just taking a taxi up there, like, man, we're going to fall off this mountain. But, uh, you know, it's like I said, I don't think it's going to affect Rio long term. But in the short term, I think you could see some negative impact from from obviously Zika. But if they can get Zika under control, you know, for the most part, I think people still want to visit there and still want to tour there. Carnival is still, you know, an amazing thing. So I don't see it, uh, you know, hurting it in the long term, no. DeMar DeRozan, Boogie Cousins, and I believe DeAndre, DeAndre Jordan mistakenly went to a brothel down there thinking that it was a, I think it, I think they were looking for a massage parlor and they wound up walking into a brothel. That has nothing to do with anything. I just thought it was funny and I wanted to put it out there real quick. Uh, Simone Biles, uh, you, you, even if you haven't watched the Olympics, you've heard her name by now. I was in the grocery store the other day, and she's already on, I think it was either Wheaties or Special K, one of those cereal boxes. But she's already won a team gold, all-around gold. She may have won another medal that I can't think of, but she has dominated the Olympics. As a matter of fact, the margin of victory that she won, the the all-around individual, the margin of victory was greater than from 1980 to 2012. If you combine the margin of victory, it was greater than all of those combined. So she has definitely dominated. She's so great that she has a move named after her. Like the, the things that she does is so difficult that other gymnasts, they don't even attempt it. And they they just call it the Biles, I believe. So she has definitely dominated and lived up to the hype because there's a lot of hype surrounding her, this, this young 19-year-old from Houston coming into the Olympics. And she has lived up to it and probably even surpassed it. Uh, and the other story, Simone, Simone Manuel, the first, I hope I'm saying her last name right, her, the first African-American to win an individual gold medal in swimming. That's male or female. Um, I guess what I wanted to ask you, what would be more memorable for you, the, the dominance of Simone Biles or that surprising victory and her reaction? Like, 
the the I, I love the reaction that she had. She she cried. She shared tears. Um, it was a great story to see. From she wasn't even leading the entire race. She had to come from behind, and she wound up pulling ahead, and she tied for first place, I believe. So, which moment was stand out the most for you? And did some people are saying that Gabby Douglas was a little salty at all the attention that Simone Biles was getting. Do you agree with that as well, or are we just reading too much into that? All right, this that's a great question, and, and by far to me the moment has to be Simone Manuel, just because I, I was watching it with my wife. We watched it live, and we were like, oh, you know, she was kind of in the race, and you know, they were talking, they were hyping up the sisters. Uh, I can't think of their name, last name now. Um, the, the two sisters from Australia that are really good in that in that 100 free, and they expected them to medal or certainly win or be be on the medal stand. And you know, turning around, I believe Simone Manuel was kind of in in fifth or sixth place. So her drive to come back in the last 50 meters was just incredible. And to me, you know, that was a moment to look up and see her face and realize that she won. I, I mean, I'm 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 not saying I'm. I'm really a hard dude or anything like that, but man, I was, I, I definitely got, my eye was like, man, I, I gotta get right. You know, I can't, I ain't gonna cry, you know, but it was, it was an, it was an emotional feeling. Just you felt it's something that you felt, you know, you know, I don't, and it could have been something just because maybe I'm African American. I understand the history of segregation and everything that goes on with pools and things like that. And, and I'll post an article about that actually um, on the page because it's a great article about how you know, segregation and how pools have been segregated. And part of the reason why, and this is not something to get in a tangent, but when you look at swimming, you're like, man, it looks very white. You know, American swimming looks very white. Why is that? And it's not that the white swimmers we have aren't amazing because it's, and, and I don't want to turn this to a race thing, but systematically over the years, black people, black, especially black women have been discouraged from swimming. So to see a black woman get a gold medal was amazing. I mean, I go back and I remember, I think Cullen Jones, I think it was in 2012, he won a silver in the 50 free. He was the first black man I ever saw compete, and I was very impressed by him. That was a moment that people may or may or may not remember. But uh, Cullen Jones was the guy who won a silver medal in the 50 free. I think it was in the 2012 Olympics. He's not, I don't know if he's in, he doesn't appear to be in swimming or not on the team this year. So, but certainly that moment was stood out for me. And not to take it away from Simone Biles, she is the best gymnast I've ever seen. But I was just, the, the shock of Simone Manuel winning it and the way she won, it just can't, it just can't be, I just can't get over it because it was such an, it was such a, a great moment. Because as, as they say, swimming is the only race or the only sport where we know who wins before the winners, the winners do. Because we see them touch the wall and the TV tells us, okay, this person came in first, second, third. They have to turn around and look up at the board. So we all knew before she did that she won. And that was that was an incredible moment. And, and being that I have a daughter and certainly I don't, I, I'm not projecting her to be in swimming, but you think about that. You think about a young woman growing up and what she maybe had to do to get there. And you see that and you, and you internalize it. And it's, it's a great moment. So that will always stick with me as, as one of my favorite Olympic moments, no matter how long I live and how many Olympics I see, I, I can't, I don't think I'll ever uh, forget that moment. Kate and Bronte Campbell are the uh, Australian uh, sisters that you were thinking of and I gotta agree with you man like to me what Simone Manuel did is why we watch sports you know just to see that you know for someone to do the unexpected and like I say just her reaction to winning was great uh, Simone Biles she definitely though like I say it's, it's it can be hard to live up to the hype sometime and they definitely hyped her coming into these Olympics so I'm, I'm very happy that she uh, lived up to it but again, like what Simone Biles did, and I didn't even see it live. Like I'm jealous that you got to see it live. Uh, I actually was catching up on. I'm catching up on Game of Thrones, by the way, Frank. So give me some credit for that. I, I started watching that. I was watching an episode of that, and uh, I saw what happened, and I saw the replay. So very happy for uh, Miss Biles and Miss Manuel as well, and all the American athletes that are doing their thing. I'm uh, going to let you take us out, Frank. I just want to say again, thank you to the listeners. Again, please subscribe on the different platforms from Stitcher Radio to iTunes. Also follow us on social media. We're at The Vocal Minority on Twitter, Politically Entertaining on Instagram and Facebook. And especially on Facebook, we post stories sometimes. We do these we do these shows once a week. But during the week, things may happen, and we'll post stories to uh, get you caught up on what's going on in the world today. Uh, as always, 
thanks thanks for listening and i'll let you take us out frank again just want to thank uh quentin, quentin brooker for coming on that was an amazing interview brother we hope to have you back on soon love to have that debate it's going to be exciting let me just put that out there again thank you to all the listeners out there you make the show what it is for us we definitely appreciate your support your feedback like byron said listen to us on itunes Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, share it with your friends, share it with five, six, seven, eight friends. We have to let people know about the political process, how important it is to vote, how important it is to be informed uh, about how you can make changes in your own political system. So have a great week and we'll see you guys soon on another episode of Politically Entertaining. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates. Mm-hmm.